the promise of a coming kingdom. Now, when scriptures or the church or someone who's speaking like myself uses the phrase kingdom of God in a group like this, we need to remember that most people do not really have the same ideas that you or I do about the kingdom of God and what it is or when and how it will happen. Some people think that the kingdom of God is getting to go to heaven after death. And we have talked about that. I mean, of course, that's contingent upon you being a good person in life. I spent an entire sermon on that about a month ago, I think it was, proving that this was certainly not the case from Scripture. And I'm not going to go over all that material again, except to remind you that God's Word clearly tells us that no person born of the flesh has ever ascended to heaven except Jesus Christ, who was resurrected after three days and three nights in the grave. Now, another idea that I haven't put on the table yet, very common though, another idea that many people have about the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is the church or a church or the age of the church. And the general idea, and I'm just painting in the broadest of strokes here, okay? But the general idea is that Christ currently reigns on earth through the church. Um, using the church or his, or the head of the church, you know, like maybe the Pope or something like that, as his agent or representatives on earth. This is a very, very common way of looking at the kingdom of God. And it's common also to see the church, therefore, as being commissioned to transform the earth along godly principles, to make disciples of all nations. And then after that transformation has um, been accomplished or, say, it reaches a critical mass or whatever, then Christ will return. Now this, you might think, well, that's, that's not what we teach. No, it's not. But this has, or and is, the most dominant interpretation of the kingdom of God. Uh, and it has been since about 200 to 300 AD. The teaching that you hear here, that Christ will return and then establish the rule of God on earth, beginning first with a period of a thousand years, followed by an unveiling of new heavens and new earth is definitely the minority position. The minority position. It does seem to have a lot more people thinking along similar lines in the United States, but when you look at the whole world, when you look at all the people that are out there who have the Bible and their various interpretations of it, the one that I've just thrown out there for you is the most dominant way of looking at the kingdom of God. At the same time, simmering under the surface and coexisting with the idea of the church as the kingdom of God is sort of a nebulous, murky vision of the kingdom of God as a state of mind. And, and it's supposedly something that exists in the heart of those who truly believe. A state of mind that represents... And again, this is just my summary of it, my, what I'm trying to present a big, big group of people in very small statements. A state of mind that represents 
for, for many, the finest and most noble goals and ideals attainable by humanity. You know, the best of our thinking, and this is distilled down in the kingdom of God way of thinking. It's, it you know, burns in your heart with passion. And when this kingdom thinking reaches, again, a critical mass or you know, just has taken over the earth, if you will, reached a tipping point, not quite sure. But when it rules in the hearts of humanity, then good things will happen. And this is a pretty common way of looking at the kingdom of God and looking at God's plan for humanity. It's not what you get here. But it's very common. These two ways of looking at the kingdom of God, I would also add, are the driving force behind positioning the church or a church or, the, or any church as the instigator of social justice, reform, and as God's instrument to convert humanity to the higher ideals of love, compassion, personal integrity, respect for human life, sexual fidelity, and stuff like that. And it's an approach that over the centuries, look, frankly, it has brought about some very positive changes to an otherwise vicious and bloodthirsty world. And even applying just parts of God's word and God's truth has a positive influence on human society. There's no doubt about that. And if you look at history, that's what you will see. And you see that happening because the way that people look at the kingdom of God and what it is and what it's supposed to accomplish. And there's some good. Even, you know, whatever good you can take out of scriptures, even if you don't have the whole truth, it's going to change your life, right? Now, we want the whole truth. We want to give you the whole diet here. So there is a positive influence on human society and culture and government. But there is a fatal flaw in the plan. Fatal flaw. Noble ideas and these high ideals, they can find a home in the human heart. Truly, they can. But so can very dark, selfish, and destructive ideas. They too can find a home in the human heart. And as you well know, they can both be in there at the same time. As the scriptures tell us, the human heart is, is, is a tricky thing. <laughs> Actually, it says, the human heart is deceitful above all things and incurably wicked. Who can understand it? It's a slippery fish. You think you get a hold on it and it's gone. The churches of this world and their program to make the world subject to Christ are staffed by human beings who are themselves a mixture of good and evil. That's just the way it is and that's the way we are. And because of this, as I've called it, fatal flaw, Understanding the kingdom of God to be the reign or the age of a church, any church. And we would make the same mistake if we made that kind of assertion. Because of this fatal flaw, understanding the kingdom of God as the reign or the age of the church puts, uh, it puts these world-changing churches in an awkward position of themselves at many times being the oppressor or the unjust judge or the one who causes the spilling of blood. 
So it's a real mixed bag, isn't it? Now, that is a very simplified version, very simplified. I can't apologize enough for how simplified it is. Version of the most prevalent understanding of what the kingdom of God means. It's, I, you know, it has, sometimes it helps for us to realize, yeah, you know, you be talking about the kingdom of God with someone, and they have a very different view than you do. Um, it's a teaching that brings to pass good. Good things happen from such a teaching but also some bad things. And one of the bad things that happens from that, because you get this fatal flaw and you have this mixture of good and bad results and good and bad people, is that like all false doctrines, it, it has this terrible effect of bringing disrepute upon the scriptures and upon God. And lots of people look at this and they see the flaw and they say, well, if that's what God's all about, if that's what churches all, are all about, I don't want anything to do with it because it's, it's a mess. They're not, you know, clearly they're, they have good and evil in them. Turn to Exodus 20, verse 7. Uh, there's a commandment that I think is very far-reaching in many ways uh, that we don't always give like a full expansion on. And I'm actually not going to do that today, but I want to just kind of throw it out there for you to think about. Exodus 20, verse 7, the third commandment says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the, God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And I say that in this context because I do believe that the biggest problem with false doctrine and false teachings is that it brings disrepute upon God. And people look at the false ways that we've interpreted God's word and they say, well, I've had it with God. I've had it with churches. I've had it with everything religion. This commandment reminds us that God does not want his name and his reputation attached to false teachings and um, unjust causes, if you will. But that's not the main thrust of, of the message today. It's just something to think about when you, when you think about false teachings and why they're a, why they're a problem. And I, I hope we don't spend too much time talking about what other people think and how they're wrong and all that. But sometimes it's worth thinking about how God looks at it. What we want to talk about is the true promise of God's coming kingdom. That's what we want to focus on today. So the true promise of God's coming kingdom. In the New Testament, the word kingdom is basilia. And it's a Greek word meaning royal power, authority, rulership, dominion, stuff like that. It's kind of more like a verb than a noun because it's talking about stuff you do. You rule. So it's kind of both at the same time. So the kingdom of God can then be understood as a world-ruling monarchy governing the earth with Jesus Christ at its head. The clearest revelation or expansion on this, I think, uh, and also not only the clearest but the earliest, well, maybe not the earliest, but a very important revealing of this comes from the prophets, especially Daniel. So we're going to go there. Turn to Daniel, and in chapter 1, 
verse 17. We're given a little bit of insight into Daniel here. And I hope that you're familiar somewhat with Daniel's story. Daniel was prisoner of war, carted off to Babylon, kind of put into um, forced work, forced to work in the in the bureaucracy of, of Babylon. And uh, he also was gifted, not only being a very smart, but he had a special gift. In ver- verse 17, it says, these four young men, so he had some buddies with them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. To these four men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. He learned all the stuff in Babylon. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. So he was blessed with this ability to interpret dreams. Now, let's turn over to Daniel 2. Let's look at one of these dreams. Actually, he's not uh, the first instance we get of him interpreting a dream is not his own dream. It's the dream of the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon has his wild dream, and he wants to know what it means. And he starts you know, raging around, commanding his uh, soothsayers and astrologers and all these guys to tell me what this dream means. And they're like, nah, I have no idea. And they point, well, Daniel can tell you. And so he brings Daniel, because Daniel's known to be able to interpret dreams. And Daniel does just that. And he says some pretty good stuff to the king along the way. So Daniel 2, uh, probably should start in verse 27, not 28. Daniel replies to this request to interpret the dream. He says, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that passed through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. So he tells them, here's what you dreamed. It's pretty wild. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anybody else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Of course, it also has meaning for us today because it is a prophecy. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, this is an important part of it here, While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. You've probably seen some of the graphics that the church has produced over the years uh, for this dazzling statue. And, of course, we're not the only people that have come up with this. And the interpretations that we have, we're not the only people who have figured this stuff out either. Let's keep reading. What did Daniel make of this dream? Or what did God instruct Daniel to say about this dream? This was the dream, verse 36. And now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you 
So this is Nebuchadnezzar, are the king of kings. And the God of heaven has revealed, has given you dominion and power and might and glory. And in your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. And wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. For iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. And this is one of the longest prophecies about the kingdoms of mankind. And all these kingdoms of mankind, starting with Babylon, and we'll go through the rest of it, that are ended by this rock that's cut out, hits it on the feet, and the whole thing just falls to pieces. Those are the kingdoms and the governments and all the things that we've set up. The word kingdom here is, of course, they're written in, I think Daniel's written in, actually in Aramaic, very similar to Hebrew. It's uh, Malku is the word kingdom. It basically means the same thing as Basilea. So we're talking about the same thing here, a world-ruling monarchy governing the earth, which will be headed by Jesus Christ as its head. The statue, or the image, okay, graphically represents a succession of worldly empires. You've seen that on the graphic, and they've got little arrows, and they point to, you know, this is that kingdom, and this is this. Of course, that is not something that is only by our interpretation. It's very commonly held, understood. And then the last and final of these kingdoms, not part of the statue, it's this rock that's cut out of a mountain and smashes the feet. That's the kingdom of God, established and ruled by Jesus Christ. He is the rock that is cut out or not cut out by any human hands, indicating that this is of God's doing, not of man's doing. Through the inspiration of God, Daniel reveals that the head of gold was Babylon. We read that in verse uh, 38, 38. It's also generally understood by almost every reader of scripture that the chest and arms of silver is the Persian empire and the belly and thighs of brass are the Greek empire. Where do we get that from? Well, <clears throat> you could go to history. History records that God gave the land of Israel to Babylon. This whole thing is focused on who's possessing the land. God gave the land of Israel after their rebellion and rejection and the end of the, <clears throat> end of the kingdom of Israel 
gave it to Babylon. And they ruled this vast empire for, for a short while. And then they were conquered by the Persians. And the Persians, they took over this territory of Israel. They had a vast empire they ruled over for a few centuries. And then they were overrun and conquered by the Greek armies of Alexander the Great, who took what Persia had and ruled over an even larger territory. And then finally, Rome comes along, conquers the Greeks, and took over their empire, all their lands and territories. So the land that was once Israel now became part of their territory. That's the focus, why these kingdoms are talked about instead of like the Ming Dynasty or anything like that. It doesn't really have anything to do with Israel. God is very focused on Jerusalem, Israel, and so forth. <clears throat> anyway, a bit of a sidebar. We're in Daniel, so please go to Daniel 7. Daniel now has a dream of his own. And it is about the same stuff. Four successive kingdoms. I'm going to read that. In the first year of Belshazzar, so this is a while afterwards, a new king is on the throne, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. And Daniel said, In my vision, at night I looked, and there before me were the, were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the other, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on its two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and I was told, get up, or it was told, get up, and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. Those are a few details that kind of play into the Greek empire, but we don't have time to spend a lot on that. Verse 7, And after that in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast. So this would kind of be like the legs of iron, the fourth successive kingdom. Terrifying and frightening, very powerful. And it had large iron teeth, and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one which came up among them, and three of the horns were uprooted before it, and this horn had eyes like the eyes of a human in its mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words of the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. And the other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. That's a very important little phrase right there, the son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, 
and sovereign power, all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Speaking here of the Son of Man. Then the interpretation. Daniel says, okay, well, what does this mean? I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there, and I asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings that will rise out of the earth, the four successive kingdoms that we're talking about. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yep, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know more about the meaning of the fourth beast, which was terrifying from all the others, different from all the others, and had the iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot everything was left. And I wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others. And he gave me this explanation. I'm going to drop down to verse 23. The fourth beast is the fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom, and after them another king will arise different, and he will subdue the three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people. He will try to change the set times and the laws, and the holy people will be delivered into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit, and the powers will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. So Daniel himself has this dream of the four successive kingdoms. And this time it's a little different perspective from the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. They're, they're depicted as wild animals, which I think kind of tells us something about God's perspective on where they're coming from, <laughs> their character. Wild, like beasts. Wild animals. The fourth of these kings, or kingdom empires, is noted as being especially cruel and aggressive towards the people of God. The fourth empire is also spoken of as existing in one form or another until the time when Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, comes to take over all the power, authority, and rule on earth. So this succession of kingdoms lasts until the return of Christ in power and great glory. And you can, that's basically that was verse 8 through 14 is really narrows that down. Now after that, Daniel has another Here's another uh, dream. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but in chapter 8, you might want to read that on your own. He has a third vision about the kings and kingdoms of the future, and this dream only features two of the kingdoms, okay? The, two of the kingdoms that follow Babylon, which the other kingdoms haven't been identified by name in Scripture yet. Just Babylon, right? The head of gold. Well, these two kingdoms are depicted as two rams, and they're battling it out, and they clash, and they're having this war. And we find their identities revealed in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 8, where it says, The two-horned ram that you saw represents the king of Media and Persia. And verse 21 says, The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. 
and that would be Alexander the Great. And it's, you know, it had the four heads as well, right? And that's the, it broke up into four kingdoms. There's all kinds of details in there. So they're Persia, and then followed by Greece, right? And the fourth kingdom that persists until the return of Christ, I got to tell you, folks, its name is not revealed specifically in Scripture, okay? It's just not there. Although, almost everybody knows that it's Rome. But not all things have been given to us to know on that level. I'll leave it at that, okay? But what's important for us, and the reason I went through these scriptures and I went through the whole vision, is because they end the same way. Very important. The, the beasts and the visions and the gold and the silver and the you know, leopards and lions. What's important is that human governments will be replaced by the kingdom of God and by the rule of God. And all these prophecies, which are very long and explicit, go through all this stuff. And what is the end of all of this? The kingdom of God replaces them all. So we had the vision of the giant statue with its four sections and the vision of the four beasts that rise out of the sea. All of them are removed and replaced by the kingdom of God ruled by Jesus Christ, the king, the son of man. He called himself the son of man. I'm the son of man. And you could say he was, you know, among other things, pointing back to this prophecy and other prophecies about the son of man. This kingdom that we're talking about that's established in both these very long prophecies, that's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God which Jesus preached about to people during his days in the flesh. That's what he was talking about. He had a lot more to say about it. You know, what, what it means to be part of the kingdom, how you get in, how you do this, how you become of the same mind as a kingdom and all that. But the establishment of the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about, that's what we just read about. The same thing. The rule of God with Jesus Christ as king replaces all human governments, all earth's human systems of government, its rulers, its subjects, its laws, its culture, its traditions, all that stuff. And it takes over their territory as well. Notice I made a point of that. It takes over the territory. The kingdom of God, in other words, will take over the entire planet. All the territory of man's kingdoms. All the earth's territory will be given over to Jesus Christ and those who are with him at his return. And this, if you remember what I talked about a bit in the last message, this is when the meek shall inherit the earth. All the territory goes to Jesus Christ and those who are with him when he returns. And this is the encouraging message that Jesus came to preach. There's a solution. It's going to happen. It's going to come down. There's a, more information. There's a timetable, and I've referred to that. This is what Jesus came to preach and proclaim and expand upon in many ways. The kingdom of God is not a state of mind. You have to have a certain state of mind to enter into the kingdom. But the kingdom of God is not a state of mind. It is not a lofty ideal or the distillation of the best of human thinking. 
something that we've dreamed about and maybe we'll achieve it one day. That's not what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is very real. To use a current phrase, boots on the ground, plan of action with a specific timetable, right? To transform the earth into something amazing and wonderful. Yeah, the plan is to change the earth, to transform the earth. That is the plan. But it will be accomplished by Jesus Christ and those who are with him. This is the message of the kingdom of God. Well, that sounds pretty good, right? Why don't we start, why don't we start right now? Why are we waiting? Right? How about now? Scriptural prophecy indicates, and maybe we can go through this. Uh, I know we have in the past, and we can go through it again. But scriptural prophecy indicates that humanity will not achieve the goals, the ideals, and the perfections of the kingdom of God. That's not humans' destiny on their own power. We're not going to get there. Actually, uh, almost the opposite is the case, according to what God tells us. Jesus Christ himself will actually have to stage an intervention. You know, <laughs> An intervention is going to have to happen, or you people are all going to wipe yourself out. We've got all these people running around on this planet with intercontinental ballistic missiles and warheads. And I was watching some YouTube videos this week, and it was kind of, it was very scary stuff. It just made my, made my skin crawl looking at robotics and automated weaponry and stuff like that. And, you know, some of this stuff that you've seen in the movies is happening. And it's really creepy and it's very, very scary. And there's going to have to be an intervention. And Jesus Christ is the one who's going to sit humanity down and we're going to talk. But for now, humanity um, has been allotted a specific amount of time. Okay? Um... When Daniel wanted to know, he said, what's the meaning of all this stuff? Did I pass that? Uh, I can't remember what the scripture is, but um, Daniel wanted to know the meaning of all these things. And he's told, all right, go your way, Daniel. It's not given to you to know these things right now. Well, when's it all going to happen? They asked Jesus, well, when's this all going to happen? He said, it's not for you to know when it's going to happen. But it is going to happen. There's a timetable, and the scripture's over and over again say, when the time comes. There is a timetable. For now, humanity has been allotted a specific and finite amount of time to rule themselves. We're in the middle of that. It's a big, not a thought experiment, but it's like a big experiment. We're right in the middle of it. And it's what humanity has chosen. We touch on that a lot. You know that. It is what humanity has chosen, and it is what God has allowed. Plain and simple. Separation from God. We want to be separate. We want to do our own thing. And a high level of personal autonomy. Okay. People are allowed. You, you can run your own show. By the end of the allotted time, humanity will have demonstrated themselves to be completely incapable of living in a way that is peaceful just, prosperous, or healthful. Completely incapable of any of this stuff. So this vast human experiment, which we are part of, 
will come to a screeching halt when Jesus returns, when Christ returns, the anointed Messiah, the king and ruler of the kingdom of God. The failed governments, you know, the beasts, the head of gold, silver, bronze, iron, the failed governments, culture and religions that humanity has cooked up along the way will be replaced with something new. Let's take a look at a couple of prophecies about the substance of the kingdom of God. We'll probably touch on these during the Feast of Tabernacles, wherever you may be going. Go to uh, Micah 4. Micah 4. These are really good ones. You probably will recognize them. Maybe not. There's lots of them. But the substance of the kingdom of God. Hmm. Let's hit the high points, okay? Micah 4, verses 1 through 3. In the last days, so at this time, at the end, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains, the greatest of the nations. It's a poetic way of saying a nation. A city was on a mountain. Jerusalem's on a mountain. And it will be exalted above the hills, and people will stream to it. And many nations, so we're talking about the whole planet here, many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many people and he will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Let's go to Isaiah 9 and read that. So there's law, there's teaching, there's understanding, taking over military aspects, redirecting them in a you know, radically different direction. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Longer prophecy, which is a joy to read. I'm just going to pluck out these verses. You'll, you know, if you're familiar with Handel's Messiah, you'll heard these sung. For unto us a child is born. Okay, you've probably heard that scripture somewhere before. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders doesn't say that happy thoughts from his mind are going to beam into other people's minds and overtake their thinking. That's not what we're reading. It says the government will be on his shoulders. As we read in Micah, people will learn these things. They will learn the laws and ways of God. And the government, this ruling authority, will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So under Christ's rule, well, things are going to be different. <laughs> I hope you see the difference. Humanity will at long last get an opportunity to see what the kingdom of God is really about. We've got a lot of crazy ideas floating around on this planet about what the kingdom of God is. 
Is it heaven? Is it a feeling in your mind? Is it the church? No, no, no. At this point, though, when Christ has returned and these prophecies are happening, that's when people really get to know what is the kingdom of God all about? What does it really mean? People will learn God's ways and experience the God way of doing things. And this too, if you, if you pay attention to the message, this too will happen for an allotted amount of time. A thousand years. So there's a timeline even on this. Okay, however many years mankind has to do their thing, and then we're going to have a thousand years where we do things God's way. That's the message of prophecy. Doesn't mean that's the end of God's rule after a thousand years, but we've got this allotted time of a thousand years when people will get to see what is the kingdom of God all about? What is this? What is this? And we're, you know, told from scriptures, it's a thousand years. And then there's a time to choose. It's always about choice with God. You have to choose. After this 1,000-year period, this allotted time to do things God's way, people are going to have to make a choice. Now, God could say at that point, well, look, okay, humanity, I gave you plenty of time to run the world your way. And it was a botch. It did not go well. Are you interested in my way now? It's been implemented for a thousand years, and you can clearly see the fruits of it. This is the kingdom of God. This is what it's all about. What it's like. Do you want to be part of it? That's going to be the choice. Now, who's he going to say that to? Who will be given this choice? Well, the answer to that is a very, very meaningful and important answer is, Everyone who's ever lived. Everyone who's ever lived. Because at the end of the thousand years of righteous rule, all people who have ever lived will be resurrected to life. This is the message of the kingdom of God. They will be resurrected to life and they're going to see the kingdom of God. The followers of Christ, now just to make a bit of a sidebar, the followers of Christ will have already been resurrected. Um, the resurrection happens for them, hopefully for you, way back when Jesus first came to take over. And, in fact, they worked together with him to put this 1,000-year uh, demo <laughs> of a God-based world together. God gave them that opportunity and that blessing. You can be part of this, and you can help me set this up. Um, now, after the thousand years, a couple of really interesting things happen. Uh, one, if you are, let's just take a look at Revelation 20, if you would, because I, I, I want to back up and just talk about that for a sec. Revelation 20, verses 4 and 6. In case you think, man, this guy's really getting out there. What is he talking about? He needs to get back to some scriptures. Prove all this stuff to me. 
Revelation 20, verses 4 and 6. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. This testimony that we're giving right now, if you will. They had not worshipped the beast or its image, and they had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So they come to life, and they're part of this 1,000-year-long Godway experiment, if you will. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now in verse 5 it says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So there's a thousand years between these two resurrections here. This is the first resurrection, speaking of those who were resurrected when Christ returns. And blessed and holy are those who share in this first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So after this thousand years, I kind of jumped ahead there, two things, really interesting things happen. All these people will be resurrected to life. We also are told in uh, verses 7 through 10 that Satan will be released to deceive. And then in verses 11 and 12, we find that a session of judgment is set up for all these people who are resurrected. This is the session of judgment that we read about in Daniel. It's the same one. When people are resurrected, what kind of conditions are they going to encounter? What are they going to see? Well, all those who have lived, all those who have lived and died will be raised back to life, okay? Into a world that is a product of 1,000 years of righteous rule. And if you think about it, they will, they will see, hear, smell, taste, and touch the kingdom of God. They will be able to use all their senses to say that this is what the kingdom of God is. Won't they? They will be able to do all that and learn what the kingdom of God is really like. It's interesting to think about it in relation to our situation right now. Those people will not have to choose the kingdom way and the way of God based on faith. <laughs> They'll see it. It'll be right there. They won't have to base it on something they have hoped for but not seen the substance of. The definition of faith. Right? The confidence in things not seen. Hebrews 11 verses 1 through 3. Good place to go for that. They're not going to have to do that because they'll get to see it. They won't have to wonder, well, what is the kingdom of God? It'll be right there in front of them. And in that way, their time of choosing is, is different from yours. Other scriptures indicate that the kingdom of God will also allow free access to the spirit of God. Ezekiel 37 is a good place to go for that, the whole chapter. 
Other scriptures indicate that in the kingdom of God, free access to the Spirit will be made available. Understanding of spiritual truth, which comes through the presence of the Holy Spirit within you, will be available to all people who were previously blinded. They will get to see the kingdom of God. They will get to experience the Holy Spirit. They will be able to understand God's word. Okay? And this is how we understand the phrase that says, the books were opened in verse 21 there. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. They were able to understand what was written. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they did. Right? By the words that were written in the books. So, during the kingdom of God, they're going to have access to the Spirit, to understand. God's word, God's truth will be opened up to them. And then the people of this second resurrection will be judged based on what's written in the book. This is the book you've got right here. The words you have. God's way. Actually, it says scrolls. <laughs> they used scrolls. We use books. But what's written in the books? And by what they do, based on what they now know and what they're able to see in front of them. And we don't know how long this session of judgment lasts. Because it's, you know, it's an open, it's a court case. It's open. There's witnessing. There's testimony. We don't know how long it lasts. But clearly long enough for them to make an informed decision. For their names to be written into the book of life. And people who opt out of the kingdom of God, well, their names won't be written in the book of life. That second book that was opened up. Their names just, they won't be written in the book of life. They will die the second death that we just read about. And all memory of them will be removed forever. You can read about that in verses 13 through 15. What's important for us right now, and we've looked at, well, what is the, what is the gospel of the kingdom of God really about? Well, I think that's what we've just gone through. And what's important for us today to think about when you hear the message of the kingdom of God is that your time of judgment is now. Your time of judgment is now, which is a whole message on its own. But uh, God's looking at you and evaluating you right now is what it means. And you are being asked to make your decision for the kingdom of God now. Now. Your decision will be based on faith. A big difference. Your decision is based on faith. Believing in and placing your confidence in stuff that you haven't seen. Or touched. Or tasted. Or smelled. Or heard. And in that way, you have to make the same decision. They have to make the same decision. Are you with me or not? Right? This is what God wants to know. You have to make that decision on faith. It's more challenging. 
But you are being called now to make that choice. All you know of the kingdom of God is what God has told you and what he has promised you, what he has written in this book, and what he has, you know, people tell you about and teach you about, what you can learn for yourself. That's what you know. And it's based on faith. And we've talked about faith at length, so I don't need to go into all that. But God is calling you also to take your place alongside Christ to assist him in setting up that 1,000-year-long demonstration. That's not, the big, that's not the end of the kingdom of God. That's just the beginning of the kingdom of God, or the rule of God established on earth. Okay? And the kingdom of God exists at all times. But its establishment on earth begins with that 1,000 years. God is calling you to assist him in setting it up. 1,000-year-long demo, right? And God is calling you to declare yourself for the kingdom and to start living and learning the kingdom of God way of life right now. And that's what so much of the teaching that we have is about. How do you become now a citizen or a member of the kingdom of God, ready to roll, hit the ground running, and he's calling you to a prized position in the eternal family as part of the bride. A prized position within the family. You're not going to get to be the husband, sorry, but you can be part of the bride. The help and helpmate of Jesus Christ himself at his return. So the kingdom of God, that's the message that Jesus had. That's why you repent. That's why you change. That's why you seek to overcome. That's why you seek to put on the mind of Christ. To prepare yourself for the kingdom of God. So after the thousand years, after the judgment, what happens? Well, the kingdom of God just goes on forever. It's everlasting. We're in Revelation 21. Let's read verses 1 through 7. Then... I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away and he who was seated on the throne said I'm making everything new and then he said write this down for the words are trustworthy and true and he said to me it's done it's a done deal it's going to happen I am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So that's the real message of the kingdom of God. <laughs>